Chapter 6, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The execution of so many innocent citizens was bewailed by the secret tears of their friends and families. The death of Pepinian, the Praetorian prefect, was lamented as a public calamity. During the last seven years of Severus, he had exercised the most important offices of the state, and, by his salutary influence, guided the emperor's steps in the paths of justice and moderation. In full assurance of his virtues and abilities, Severus, on his deathbed, had conjured him to watch over the prosperity and union of the imperial family. The honest labors of Pepinian served only to inflame the hatred which Caracula had already conceived against his father's minister. After the murder of Geta, the prefect was commanded to exert the powers of his skill and eloquence in a studied apology for that atrocious deed. The philosophic Seneca had condescended to compose a similar epistle to the Senate, in the name of the son and assassin of Agrippina. Quote, that it was easier to commit than to justify a parricide, unquote, was the glorious reply of Pepinian, who did not hesitate between the loss of life and that of honor. Such intrepid virtue, which had escaped pure and unsullied from the intrigues of courts, the habits of business, and the arts of his profession, reflects more luster on the memory of Pepinian than all his great employments, his numerous writings, and the superior reputation as a lawyer, which he has preserved through every age of Roman jurisprudence. It had hitherto been the particular felicity of the Romans, and in the worst of times their consolation, that the virtue of the emperors was active, their vice indolent. Augustus, Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus had visited their extensive dominions in person. Their progress was marked by acts of wisdom and beneficence. The tyranny of Tiberius, Nero, and Domitian, who resided almost constantly at Rome or in the adjacent villas, was confined to the senatorial and equestrian orders. But Caracalla was the common enemy of mankind. He left the capital, and he never returned to it, about a year after the murder of Geta. The rest of his reign was spent in the several provinces of the empire, particularly those of the east, and every province was, by turns, the scene of his rapine and cruelty. The senators, compelled by fear to attend his capricious motions, were obliged to provide daily entertainments at an immense expense, which he abandoned with contempt to his guards, and to erect, in every city, magnificent palaces and theaters, which he either disdained to visit or ordered to be immediately thrown down. The most wealthy families were ruined by partial fines and confiscations, and the great body of his subjects oppressed by ingenious and aggravated taxes. In the midst of peace, and upon the slightest provocation, he issued his commands, at Alexandria in Egypt, for a general massacre. From a secure post in the temple of Serapis, he viewed and directed the slaughter of many thousand citizens, as well as strangers, without distinguishing either the numbers or the crimes of the sufferers. Since, as he coolly informed the Senate, all the Alexandrians, those who had perished and those who had escaped, were alike guilty. The wise instructions of Severus never made any lasting impression on the mind of his son, who, although not destitute of imagination and eloquence, was equally devoid of judgment and humanity. One dangerous maxim, worthy of a tyrant, was remembered and abused by Caracalla to secure the affections of the army, and esteem the rest of his subjects as of little moment. But the liberality of the father had been restrained by prudence, and his indulgence to the troop was tempered by firmness and authority. 
The careless profusion of the sun was the policy of one reign, and the inevitable ruin of the army and of the empire. The vigor of the soldiers, instead of being confirmed by the severe discipline of the camps, melted away in the luxury of cities. The excessive increase of their pay and donatives exhausted the state to enrich the military order, whose modesty in peace and service in war is best secured by an honorable poverty. The demeanor of Caracalla was haughty and full of pride, but with the troops he forgot even the proper dignity of his rank, encouraged their insolent familiarity, and, neglecting the essential duties of a general, affected to imitate their dress and manners of a common soldier. It was impossible that such a character and such a conduct as that of Caracalla could inspire either love or esteem, but as long as his vices were beneficial to the armies, he was secure from the danger of rebellion. A secret conspiracy, provoked by his own jealousy, was fatal to the tyrant. The Praetorian prefecture was divided between two ministers. The military department was entrusted to Aventus, an experienced rather than an able soldier, and the civil affairs was transacted by Apilius Macrinus, who, by his dexterity in business, had raised himself with a fair character to that high office. But his favor varied with the caprice of the emperor, and his life might depend on the slightest suspicion or the most casual circumstance. Malice or fanaticism had suggested to an African, deeply skilled in the knowledge of futurity, a very dangerous prediction, that Macrinus and his son were destined to reign over the empire. Their report was soon diffused through the province, and when the man was sent in chains to Rome, he still asserted, in the presence of the prefect of the city, the faith of his prophecy. That magistrate, who had received the most pressing instructions to inform himself of the successors of Caracalla, immediately communicated the examination of the African to the imperial court, which at that time resided in Syria. Notwithstanding the diligence of the public messengers, the friends of Macrinus found means to apprise him of the approaching danger. The emperor received the letters from Rome, and, as he was then engaged in the conduct of a chariot race, he delivered them unopened to the Praetorian prefect, directing him to dispatch the ordinary affairs, and to report the more important business that might be contained in them. Macrinus read his fate and resolved to prevent it. He inflamed the discontents of some inferior officers, and employed the hand of Martialis, a desperate soldier who had been refused the rank of centurion. The devotion of Caracalla had prompted him to make a pilgrimage from Edessa to the celebrated Temple of the Moon at Cairai. He was attended by a body of cavalry, but had stopped on the road for some necessary occasion. His guards preserved a respectful distance, and Martialis, approaching his person under a pretense of duty, stabbed him with a dagger. The bold assassin was instantly killed by a Scythian archer of the Imperial Guard. Such was the end of a monster whose life disgraced human nature and whose reign accused the patience of the Romans. The grateful soldiers forgot their vices, remembered only his partial liberality, and obliged the Senate to prostitute their own dignity and that of religion by granting him a place among the gods. Whilst he was upon earth, Alexander the Great was the only hero whom this god deemed worthy his admiration. He assumed the name and ensigns of Alexander, formed a Macedonian phalanx of guards, persecuted the disciples of Aristotle, and displayed with a puerile enthusiasm the only sentiment by which he discovered any regard for virtue or glory. We can easily conceive that, after the Battle of Narva and the conquest of Poland, Charles the Twelfth, 
although he still wanted the more elegant accomplishments of the son of Philip, might boast of having rivaled his valor and magnanimity. But in no one action of his life did Caracalla express the faintest resemblance of the Macedonian hero, except in the murder of a great number of his own and his father's friends. After the extinction of the house of Severus, the Roman world remained three days without a master. The choice of the army, for the authority of a distant and feeble senate was little regarded, hung in ancient suspense, as no candidate presented himself whose distinguished birth and merit could engage their attachment and unite their suffrages. The decisive weight of the Praetorian guards elevated the hopes of their prefects, and these powerful ministers began to assert their legal claim to fill the vacancy of the imperial throne. Aventus, however, the senior prefect, conscious of his age and infirmities, of his small reputation and his smaller abilities, resigned the dangerous honor to the crafty ambition of his colleague Macrinus, whose well-dissembled grief removed all suspicions of his being accessory to his master's death. The troops neither loved nor esteemed his character. They cast their eyes around in search of a competitor, and at last yielded with reluctance to his promises of unbounded liberality and indulgence. A short time after his accession, he conferred on his son, Diodumenianus, at the age of only ten years, the imperial title and the popular name of Antoninus. The beautiful figure of the youth, assisted by an additional donative, for which the ceremony furnished a pretext, might attract, it was hoped, the favor of the army and secure the doubtful throne of Macrinus. The authority of the new sovereign had been ratified by the cheerful submission of the Senate and provinces. They exulted in their unexpected deliverance from a hated tyrant, and it seemed of little consequence to examine into the virtues of the successor of Caracalla. But as soon as the first transports of joy and surprise had subsided, they began to scrutinize the merits of Macrinus with a critical severity, and to arraign the hasty choice of the army. It had hitherto been considered as a fundamental maxim of the Constitution that the Emperor must always be chosen in the Senate, and the sovereign power, no longer exercised by the whole body, was always delegated to one of its members. But Macrinus was not a senator. The sudden elevation of the Praetorian prefects betrayed the meanness of their origin, and the equestrian order was still in possession of that great office, which commanded with arbitrary sway the lives and fortunes of the Senate. A murmur of indignation was heard that a man whose obscure extraction had never been illustrated by any signal service should dare to invest himself with the purple instead of bestowing it on some distinguished senator, equal in birth and dignity to the splendor of the imperial station. As soon as the character of Macrinus was surveyed by the sharp eye of discontent, some vices and many defects were easily discovered. The choice of his ministers was in several instances justly censored, and the dissatisfied people, with their usual candor, accused at once his indolent tameness and his excessive severity. His rash ambition had climbed a height where it was difficult to stand with firmness and impossible to fall without instant destruction. Trained in the arts of courts and the forms of civil business, he trembled in the presence of the fierce and undisciplined multitude over whom he had assumed the command. His military talents were despised and his personal courage suspected. A whisper that circulated in the camp disclosed the fatal secret of the conspiracy against the late emperor, aggravated the guilt of murder by the baseness of hypocrisy, and heightened contempt by detestation. To alienate the soldiers and to provoke inevitable ruin, the character of a reformer was only wanting, and such was the peculiar hardship of his fate that Macrinus was compelled to exercise that invidious office. The prodigality of Caracalla 
had left behind it a long train of ruin and disorder, and if that worthless tyrant had been capable of reflecting on the sure consequences of his own conduct, he would perhaps have enjoyed the dark prospect of the distress and calamities which he bequeathed to his successors. In the management of this necessary reformation, Macrinus proceeded with a cautious prudence, which would have restored health and vigor to the Roman army in an easy and almost imperceptible manner. To the soldiers already engaged in the service, he was constrained to leave the dangerous privileges and extravagant pay given by Caracalla. But the new recruits were received on the more moderate, though liberal, establishment of Severus, and gradually formed to modesty and obedience. One fatal error destroyed the salutary effects of this judicious plan. The numerous army, assembled in the east by the late emperor, instead of being immediately dispersed by Macrinus through the several provinces, was suffered to remain united in Syria during the winter that followed his elevation. In the luxurious idleness of their quarters, the troops viewed their strength in numbers, communicated their complaints, and revolved in their minds the advantages of another revolution. The veterans, instead of being flattered by the advantageous distinction, were alarmed by the first steps of the emperor, which they considered as the presage of his future intentions. The recruits, with sullen reluctance, entered on his servants, whose labors were increased while his rewards were diminished by a covetous and unwarlike sovereign. The murmurs of the army swelled with impunity into seditious clamors, and the partial mutinies betrayed a spirit of discontent and disaffection that waited only for the slightest occasion to break out on every side into a general rebellion. To minds thus disposed, the occasion soon presented itself. The Empress Julia had experienced all the vicissitudes of fortune. From a humble station, she had been raised to greatness, only to taste the superior bitterness of an exalted rank. She was doomed to weep over the death of one of her sons, and over the life of the other. The cruel fate of Caracalla, though her good sense must have long taught her to expect it, awakened the feelings of a mother and of an empress. Notwithstanding the respectful civility expressed by the usurper towards the widow of Severus, she descended with a painful struggle into the condition of a subject, and soon withdrew herself by a voluntary death from the anxious and humiliating dependence. Julia Mysa, her sister, was ordered to leave the court and Antioch. She retired to Emesa with an immense fortune, the fruit of twenty years' labor, accompanied by her two daughters, Somaius and Mamaya, each of whom was a widow, and each had an only son. Basianus, for that was the name of the son of Soimius, was consecrated to the honorable ministry of high priest of the son, and this holy vocation, embraced either from prudence or superstition, contributed to raise the Syrian youth to the empire of Rome. A numerous body of troops were stationed at Emesa, and, as the severe discipline of Macrinus had constrained them to pass the winter encamped, they were eager to revenge the cruelty of such unaccustomed hardships. The soldiers, who resorted in crowds to the Temple of the Sun, beheld with veneration and delight the elegant dress and figure of the young pontiff. They recognized, or thought they had recognized, the features of Caracalla, whose memory they now adored. The artful Mysa saw and cherished their rising partiality, and, readily sacrificing her daughter's reputation to the fortunes of her grandson, she insinuated that Basianus was the natural son of their murdered sovereign. The sums distributed by her emissaries with a lavish hand silenced every objection, and the profusion sufficiently proved the affinity, or at least the resemblance of Basianus, with the great original. The young Antoninus, for he had assumed and polluted that respectable name, was declared emperor by the troops of Emesa, asserted his hereditary right, 
and called aloud on the armies to follow the standard of a young and liberal prince who had taken up arms to revenge his father's death and the oppression of the military order. Whilst a conspiracy of women and eunuchs was concerted with prudence and conducted with rapid vigor, Macrinus, who by a decisive motion might have crushed his infant enemy, floated between the opposite extremes of terror and security, which alike fixed him inactive at Antioch. A spirit of rebellion diffused itself through all the camps and garrisons of Syria. Successive detachments murdered their officers and joined the party of the rebels, and the tardy restitution of military pay and privileges was imputed to the acknowledged weakness of Macrinus. At length he marched out of Antioch to meet the increasing and zealous army of the young pretender. His own troops seemed to take the field with faintness and reluctance, but in the heat of battle the Praetorian guards, almost by an involuntary impulse, asserted the superiority of their valor and discipline. The rebel ranks were broken, when the mother and grandmother of the Syrian prince, who, according to their eastern custom, had attended the army, threw themselves from their covered chariots, and by exciting the compassion of the soldiers, endeavored to animate their drooping courage. Antoninus himself, who in the rest of his life never acted like a man, in this important crisis of his fate approved himself a hero, mounted his horse, and, at the head of his rallied troops, charged, sword in hand, among the thickest of the enemy, whilst the eunuch, Ganyes, whose occupation had been confined to female cares and the soft luxury of Asia, displayed the talents of an able and experienced general. The battle still raged with doubtful violence, and Macrinus might have obtained the victory had he not betrayed his own cause by a shameful and precipitate flight. His cowardice served only to protract his life a few days, and to stamp deserved ignominy on his misfortunes. It is scarcely necessary to add that his son, Diadumenianus, was involved in the same fate. As soon as the stubborn Praetorians could be convinced that they fought for a prince who had basely deserted them, they surrendered to the conqueror. The contending parties of the Roman army, mingling tears of joy and tenderness, united under the banners of the imagined son of Caracalla, and the East acknowledged with pleasure the first emperor of Asiatic extraction. The letters of Macrinus had condescended to inform the Senate of the slight disturbance occasioned by an impostor in Syria, and a decree immediately passed declaring the rebel and his family public enemies. With a promise of pardon, however, to such of his deluded adherents as should merit it by an immediate return to their duty, during the twenty days that elapsed from the declaration to the victory of Antoninus, for in so short an interval was the fate of the Roman world decided, the capital and the provinces, more especially those of the east, were distracted with hopes and fears, agitated with tumult, and stained with a useless effusion of civil blood. Since whosoever of the rivals prevailed in Syria must reign over the empire. The specious letters in which the young conqueror announced his victory to the obedient senate were filled with professions of virtue and moderation. The shining examples of Marcus and Augustus he should ever consider as his great rule of his administration, and he affected to dwell with pride on the striking resemblance of his own age and fortunes with those of Augustus, who, in the earliest youth, had revenged by a successful war the murder of his father. By adopting the style of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, son of Antoninus, grandson of Severus, he tacitly asserted his hereditary claim to empire. But, by assuming the tribunician and proconsular powers before they had been conferred on him by a decree of the Senate, he offended the delicacy of Roman prejudice. This new and injudicious violation of the Constitution was probably dictated either by the ignorance of Assyrian courtiers or the fierce disdain of his military followers.
As the attention of the new emperor was diverted by the most trifling amusements, he wasted many months in his luxurious progress from Syria to Italy, passed at Nicomedia the first winter after his victory, and deferred till the ensuing summer his triumphal entry into the capital. A faithful picture, however, which preceded his arrival, and was placed by his immediate order over the altar of victory in the Senate House, conveyed to the Romans the just but unworthy resemblance of his person and manners. He was drawn in his sacerdotal robes of silk and gold, after the loose-flowing fashion of the Medes and Phoenicians. His head was covered with a lofty tiara. His numerous collars and bracelets were adorned with gems of inestimable value. His eyebrows were tinged with black, and his cheeks painted with an artificial red and white. The grave senators confessed with a sigh that, after having long experienced the stern tyranny of their own countrymen, Rome was at length humbled beneath the effeminate luxury of Oriental despotism. The sun was worshipped at Emesa under the name of Elagalibus, and under the form of a black conical stone, which, as it was universally believed, had fallen from heaven on that sacred place. To this protecting deity, Antoninus, not without some reason, ascribed his elevation to the throne. The display of superstitious gratitude was the only serious business of his reign. The triumph of the god of Emesa over all the religions of the earth was the great object of his zeal and vanity, and the appellation of Elagalibus, for he presumed as pontiff and favorite to adopt that sacred name, was dearer to him than all the titles of imperial greatness. In a solemn procession through the streets of Rome, the way was stewed with gold dust. The black stone, set in precious gems, was placed on a chariot drawn by six milk-white horses richly comparisoned. The pious emperor held the reins, and, supported by his ministers, moved slowly backwards that he might perpetually enjoy the felicity of the divine presence. In a magnificent temple raised on the Palatine Mount, the sacrifices of the god Elagalibus were celebrated with every circumstance of cost and solemnity. The richest wines, the most extraordinary victims, and the rarest aromatics were profusely consumed on his altar. Around the altar, a chorus of Syrian damsels performed their lascivious dances to the rhythm of barbarian music, whilst the grave personages of the state and army, clothed in long Phoenician tunics, officiated in the meanest functions with affected zeal and secret indignation. End of chapter 6, part 2